Welcome to the Wealthy After Divorce podcast. Jackie Ressler, a divorce financial planner with almost 25 years experience, and myself, Melissa Freidenberg, financial advisor with Pearl Planning. We are both certified divorce financial analysts and your co-hosts. If you're thinking about divorce or in the process of divorce, this is a time for you to take a deep breath and give yourself permission to gain clarity on the financial decisions you're facing. While the term wealth typically refers to money and possessions, we know that truly being wealthy means a whole lot more. Together with our guests on this podcast, we will help you live wealthy after divorce. Welcome back. Today, um, we've got Jackie Ressler, and I am interviewing Joran Rubin, who is um, a very well-respected family law attorney. I'm really excited to have her as a guest on our show today because she's so knowledgeable. Um, So welcome, Joran. Thanks, Jackie. Thanks for having me. So tell me a little bit about your background and how you you got into family law and, um, you know, where, where you started. Oh, sure. Um, After I graduated law school, I worked for the federal government as a prosecutor. And um, what I focused on was money laundering, prosecutions and forfeiture. And so um, I did that for a while. and, And then I decided to go into private practice. But I definitely feel like the skills that I learned uh, to prosecute money laundering cases and um, really helped me uh, when I look at a divorce case, because sometimes I'm looking at bank statements, I'm looking for financial transactions that look fishy, things like that. And it's very similar to the work I did for the government. Right. Yeah. No, it definitely gives you a particular um, a particular point of view that's different, I think, from many family law attorneys. Um, and to be able to, that must have been really interesting with money laundering, by the way. Yeah, <laughs> it's fun, you know, but um, I... Like I, Ozark, I, right? Exactly. Exactly. (laughs) Um, So, yeah, I would seize the assets of the bad guys. Um, So that's how that was my job for the government. Um, But, you know, I I decided to go into private practice and um, I wanted to help people more, um, which sounds totally corny, I know. But um, when you do when you help someone through their divorce, you really it's very personal kind of um, representation. And um, I felt more connected to my clients. And I like that better. So that's pretty much why um, I decided to, you know, sure, do this. That makes sense. Yeah. It is very gratifying to work with people at a point in their life when they really need an advocate. So we're going to talk about one of my favorite topics today because it's so complicated. And I'm I'm so, again, grateful to have you here because it's such a complicated topic that it only makes sense to have someone with a lot of experience and, um, and a lot of experience in different types of cases. So we're going to be talking about spousal support in Michigan. So we are, for any of our listeners who are in other states, We are in Michigan, so everything that we're talking about is very particular to our state. So if you are in a different state, there might be some similarities, but um, of course you need to check with with a lawyer in your state to get specific information. But can you tell me what is the general purpose for spousal support in Michigan law? 
So I want to say first, I think in some states it's statutory. In other words, there is a specific rule about how much um, alimony, we call it spousal support. Some states call it alimony. Um, It's very specific. We do not have that in Michigan. In Michigan, it's a little more touchy-feely and there's factors that the courts look at. But the goal, the purpose of alimony is to equalize the party, the spouse's um, incomes. And what it tries to do is to recognize that during a marriage, when you're a partnership, you're working together, one person may be earning the money while the other one is keeping the home nice, uh, raising children, uh, going, making sure that the person who's working can work the hours that he or she need to work to be able to um, earn all of the money. So it's basically, it's trying to recognize um, equalization of of incomes between the two parties after the divorce. Okay. So it obviously would follow from that, that different situations call for a different type of equalization or length or amount. So in terms of of how that's structured in Michigan, you mentioned that it's not statutory. So for um, for the layperson, we don't have any formula that we use. So in some ways, it's easier if there is a formula. I have, um, my cousin is in New Jersey. And when he got divorced, there's a formula. And he was yeah. not happy about the formula, but the formula was what it was. And um, it, it it makes it a little bit easier to negotiate, right? Or do you feel like sometimes makes it, it might make it harder if there was a formula? Um, well, I mean, um, child support has a formula in Michigan. And it, it, it it's very, uh, you can deviate, but it, it's not easy. Um, and I think that it, it gives you a very, very strict starting place. And, and so I think that we do have a lot of litigation about determining the amount of alimony or spousal support that is going to be paid, the length of time, modifiability of it. Um, whereas if there was a formula, a statutory formula, by, which means it's in the law, you can't really... Um, change it, um, it's, it's sometimes it's a little easier because you have a, a better starting place. Okay. And um, in my experience, it's it's really difficult. Um, it's difficult to come up with what that starting place should be because of the different factors. So can you talk a little bit about some of the factors that are considered in Michigan and what ones you might think you think are, are the most important, if there are any that are more important than others? Okay, sure. Okay. So um, there's about... Um, 11 or so general factors that that through the case law that tells us we need to look at these factors. So the most important, okay, I shouldn't say most important, but one of the more important factors is the length of the marriage. If you've been married for two years, and even if you have nothing and your spouse, you know, makes a million dollars, that's not a great alimony case because it's such a short-term marriage and you don't have the rationale of equalizing post-judgment life for the parties. So so length of marriage is often um, important. And, you know, there's no black and white seven years, 10 years, whatever. But um, I I do think seven to 10 years is after 10 years, it it might be considered a a long-term marriage. And and that's what will help you get more alimony, spousal support if you um, are married for a long time. The other issue um, is that goes together is like the, the person who's going to pay their ability to work 
And what is their job? What is their income? What are their expenses? So how much net income do they have left? And then the other person's needs. So if I'm going to be my husband or wife or whoever is going to be paying, how much does the spouse who's who's the non-earner or the lower earner, what are their needs? I mean, it, and, and that's um, very contentious usually. Um, as you know, you've helped me on many cases, um, determining budgets for people. And, um, and then that dovetails into another factor, which is prior lifestyle. So if you have a long-term marriage and you're going to country club and traveling and a big home, um, you know, this is your lifestyle. The courts are going to try to maintain the lifestyle. And especially if you have children, like you don't want to have a situation where, you know, you visit with one parent and it's Disneyland and it's fantastic. And then you go the other one and they're in a two bedroom apartment. And this is kind of the, um, thing that the courts try to equalize. So those are the main factors. Um, other important factors, um, could be the health. If someone's health is failing or not, um, if your health, you can't work, um, because of your health issues, that's very important to the court. Um, and then as far as, um, one thing that's, important to parties, but not always important to the court or not as important, I would say, is the conduct of the party during the marriage. And I say that, and I want to qualify it (laughs) (laughs) to say that every case of mine, practically someone's having an affair. And so imagine if you're a judge hearing that, that's not going to move the needle that, that much, unfortunately, while I know it's super painful to the litigants and the parties, it's not going to be like, oh my God, he had it or she had an affair. Okay. You're getting all the alimony you want. Although I will tell you in Georgia, if you are having an affair, you cannot get alimony. Really? That's a state law. Yeah. Uh, right. That's interesting. So it that's in our case here though, it, I think if you have an affair and it's been going on a long time, or you have another reason you're going to divorce, like let's say your spouse is a gambler on drugs or doing some really irresponsible behavior, that's very strong for why you would it would support your case for alimony. So those are the main factors I think that um, that swing. There's a couple other factors like the assets that you get um, after the divorce, um, and then just general equity and stuff like that. But those are the that, that's the gist. Great, of it. The big ones. It's okay. So we could talk about spousal support honestly all day long. What I really wanted to hone in on is a question that I hear all the time from clients. Um, and I think that there's a lot of confusion about this point. And clients can go through the whole case uh, from beginning to the point that they get to mediation, maybe, and they finally clicks in their mind that there's modifiable versus non-modifiable support. So in general, can you talk a little bit about what are the differences between those two and why it's important to understand the differences going into mediation or as the case is coming to a close? Well, yes, it's very important. And um, it's definitely, it usually comes up at mediation. Um, so so um, it, it's just what it sounds like. If you have modifiable support, it means if there is a change in your circumstances in the future, after your judgment is entered, you can ask the court to change the amount you pay or the, the amount you pay or the length of time that you pay, or if it can be terminated, let's say if you retire. Um, non-modifiable is that this is what you pay. This is how long you pay it. And you cannot change it no matter what happens to you in the future. 
Um, so the, the thing that, um, it just obviously depends on who I represent, but if you have a trial with the court in the state of Michigan, it, your, your alimony spousal has to be modifiable period. The court cannot order it to be not modifiable. So that's one factor when you're going into mediation, if you're going to be the one paying, the next factor, though, is you want to think about the stability of your income, your ability. If you say, I'm going to pay $2,500 for six years, well, what if you lose your job? You know, that's $30,000 after tax dollars a year. You know, if you're making two hundred, dollars maybe that, you know, it's fine. But what if you lose your job? And I'm old enough to have remembered, you know, 2008 when it was um, a total mess around here, especially with the automotive, um, or people who great paying jobs were stuck in these non-modifiable um, um, payment plans. And um, so so one thing when you're determining how you want your support to be paid, I always say, make sure you have money saved on the side in case you do lose your job or become disabled or have to get a, a lower paying job um, so that you could pay the alimony, even if, because it can't be modified. It, it, that's clear. If it's right. non-modifiable. I think that that is, um, so what happened in those situations? So people lost their jobs and they still had to pay, right? Right. What I did a lot of in, back then was um, re, re uh, like the, the the recipient was usually, you know, it, this wasn't a fake thing. I mean, people right. really, I mean, I, I don't know if you remember, it was terrible. I so, <laughs> yeah. So, so a lot of times what um, we kind of renegotiated it where we would either put the amount, we would lower it and then put the amount on the backside. We, we just had to redo the judgment of divorce. And that's what I ended up doing for a lot of people because um but but not always and then you know you'd go to court and you'd say I had, right yeah it, it was a really rough time and I think um it scared a lot of people and now we're 20 years away from that and people are forgetting that that's like except me because I'm old but like it feels like you know I, I mean it would because it's very upsetting obviously if you you know, say, I'll pay you this amount. Um, and, um, and then you can't, and you have a court order. I mean, theoretically you could go to jail if you don't pay it. So Yikes. that weighs heavy on people. Yeah. So you brought up a good point too. You, you mentioned that, um, that if it goes to court, that a judge can't kind of lock the door, that it's always going to, it's going to be open. Um, right. how many cases though, actually go in front of a judge? In Michigan, what's the percentage? I, I think it. I won't hold you to it, but no, no, no. <laughs> I think for divorce cases, it's a very low percent. Like I think it's less than three percent of all the divorce cases that are filed go to trial. Um, <clears throat> but having said that, there's also litigation after your divorce about modifying or terminating, or it just really. If you don't do modifiable, but some people do a hybrid kind of thing where they'll say yeah. it's not modifiable, except if it would be terminated if I retire or it would be terminated if I get dis if I become disabled. And so there's different contracts, which is what a judgment yeah. is that you could have entered into at the time. And then now 10, 15 years later, boom, you know, what, what, where are we? And um, so those cases uh, go to court a lot more than the, than the full trial on the divorce. 
That's okay. my experience. That, that makes sense. So a lot more post-judgment issues go in front of a judge than, yeah. than prior. Um, and I think that's telling again about the confusion that people have when they agree to something and they, they might think that it can be it, that the wording is kind of flexible, but like you said, it's a contract and the wording really matters. Um, and that's where you have to have somebody with a lot of experience, um, like you. And so one of another big question that clients ask me as a financial advisor, working with them during the divorce is they will say to me, what's better for me? You know, Jackie, should I go? Is it better for me to do non-modifiable or not or modifiable? And of course, as a non-lawyer, I always tell them that's a legal question. <laughs> I can give them some information based on their situation, but there's what's the right answer to that? There's no right or wrong answer. I mean, again, it depends on your ages. So if you're paying and you're in your 40s. I think you have some reasonable amount of certainty that even if you lost your job, you'd get another job. But if you're in your 60s and you feel like, you know, if I lost my job, would I even get another job? Would I retire? What would I do? You know, so then it, it's really personal to the the, the people involved and, and, and also the personalities. I mean, if you just want $3,000 a month and I'm going to budget around it and that's all I need. And I don't care if, if my, uh, spouse, you know, wins the lottery. I don't care. That's fine. After the judgments entered, I just need my three. You know, it's just really, there's a lot of factors, um, that are personal to each case. Right. Exactly. So there, and that's been my experience too, is that there is no one right answer. And that is why clients need to have, uh, an empathetic advocate who is, really, like you said, understands where they are in life. And I think too, that it's very difficult for people sometimes to make those kinds of decisions when they're in the middle of a trauma, which I think that to me, when clients come to me and, and this happens sometimes where they say, I don't, I don't need an attorney. I'm going to, we know it's just 50, 50. We're going to divide everything up. It's really simple. And then they start, I ask them questions about how long they've been married and what their income earning potential is of, you know, both people. And we start to, you know, this is the area of spousal support where I really believe based on my experience that you have to have legal advice. Like you absolutely, because once you make an agreement, you can't change it. Once you say it's non-modifiable, you're not going back and saying, oh, I didn't mean that. Sorry. Right. Right. And um, another little like wrinkle to this also is that Yours, if you are making in Michigan again more than say fifty or seventy thousand um, dollars, your spouse really needs to make double what you make before the courts will take you seriously um, and, and believe that you have a need. So that's one of the factors that they would look at. So. Tip. Yeah. So sometimes you could be working and, and really, you know, the incomes, maybe it's, there is a difference in your income, but that doesn't automatically mean you get um, spousal support. And um, yeah, because um, so that's just something that um, people right. just feel like, well, they make more, I should get more. And, 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 and it just, it's just not dollar for dollar like that in Michigan. No, it's not. It, although again, like you, as you mentioned in the beginning, the longer you you've been married, the older you are, it might make a difference. And that's again, where I think you really need to have an experienced attorney that knows how these different factors are going to impact your particular situation. Definitely. And, um, 
you know, I will say that maybe some people have heard there's a program, a computer program that yes. they put in factors. Um, there, there is a computer program out there that people have access to, including the courts. Um, and um, while that it, it kind of tries to take into consideration the factors we're talking about, it's a computer program. It's not the law. And um, that um, I think most of us uh, try not to, are not wedded to those numbers because there's so many other factors that can influence like health of the party, um, potential earning capacity, lifestyle, that kind of stuff. It's not in this computer program. So um, those factors, and of course, conduct of the parties um, during the marriage that led to the divorce. So, well, my experience was actually trying a case with a judge um, what, where spousal supports an issue, absolutely what the most important thing is that that budget of the person who's going to receive the money. Um, what I, my personal experience with alimony is that that's a fact, that's a, you get, that's a piece of evidence is here's the needs of the person. And then here's what um, the person who's supposed to pay earns and here's their expenses and how much is left over. Every case is pretty much done that way in real life. Well, it goes back to the factors and, um, you know, that's what the courts are going to do is look at the factors. And that's what lawyers do too when you're arguing about the amount and and length, if it's going to be a non-modifiable amount. I agree with you 100%. And I also agree that a client's budget is so important. That's the first thing that I tell every client to do. In fact, I'm going to link in the show notes here, our podcast episode on um, why I think it's so important for clients to to do that, to go through that exercise um, as a tool for their attorneys if their case does go to trial. Um, so I'm going to do that. And so I appreciate you saying that because that's I'm always on that soapbox that uh, budget is so important. It, it's it's very true. And some people live in their means and some people don't. And some people can live on much less money because they they, they don't eat out, they don't, they don't buy expensive cars, what however they do it. And once you're two people and living separately, it, it it always goes up. Everything goes up and, and it and it's difficult. And if you're the payor, you know, sometimes it's very disappointing to the the person who expected to get more money because really there's not always a ton left over for payment of alimony after child support and the, the workers, uh, the person who's earning the money's expenses. So right, exactly. Definitely well, budget is important. This was so valuable. I so appreciate you being here. How can, if people are, that are listening, how can people get in touch with you? How can they find you? Oh, sure. So, um, I have a website, which is my law firm, RubenFrampton.com. And you just Jorin, J-O-R-I-N, at RubenFrampton.com. Or call us, 248-799-9100. Perfect. And I'm going to put all that information in the show notes as well. So anyone that's looking for you, that's driving in their car right now, they can go back to the podcast episode and find your contact information in the show notes. Great. Thanks, Jackie. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening to the Wealthy After Divorce podcast. You can find more information on Melissa Fradenberg and Jackie Ressler on our website, www.pearlplan.com. 
as well as on our podcast website, www.wealthyafterdivorce.com.